0: Hey guys, how's it going? I hope you're having a great day. I know I am. Uh, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We're 45 strong up and down the state of California. So that means if you have a paranormal need, we can get you. It might take us a couple days because California is a big state. You know, a lot of people think of California, kind of like Hawaii, you know, that we have beaches and surfing and all that stuff. We do the the central to, to Southern California has all that stuff but then there's the the northern part that's kind of cool cooler people are still surfing but it's cool um but we also have farmland we've got high desert you know we've got mountains so it's really spread out really spread out that's why when I say there's 40 45 people up and down yes we have that but you might be in an area that's further out from where they're located so it might take again it might take us a couple of days to get to you but I do have uh, mediums on staff that can call you and and, and t- Take a look at what's going on and in most cases. They can calm the energy down You know if there is something there, it's how we can get out there, but it doesn't take us more than one or two days Great. Anyway, if you're watching from Facebook today, please feel free if you haven't done so already If you like what you see in here to follow, you know, we're always looking for followers um, And also if you like the show thumbs up happy faces that kind of thing and then comment because that puts us up higher in the algorithm which means when the Facebook computer looks at it or the brains at Facebook look at it it'll put us further out there for more people to see right and it works the same way with TikTok it works the same way with YouTube so over you know, YouTube we're looking for subscribers we're 310 away from hitting that thousand mark over there we're building the momentum's building the momentum's building you guys are doing a great job Uh, it'd be great if you could leave me happy faces and stuff over there in comments because, you know, during the show, because what happens again is it's all about the algorithm. TikTok works the same way. So for you guys that are coming over from TikTok to watch, uh, please, you know, please leave comments or whatever, you know, you do. Okay, that being said, I have 761 videos over at YouTube in their oldest show. And what I've done, because when you go in to look at the, to, to, to find something to watch, they're all over the place. I get migraines from it. So what I did was I've taken them and I put them into, in, into separate folders. So if you're in the, if you're in the conservation, which is what we're talking about today, there's a folder for that. So, you know, it's ready to go in there and, and take a look. If you're in Nancy mass who's on Fridays, there's a folder for her UFOs and abductions, etc., etc. So it makes it a lot easier to find, you know, what you're looking for. Okay. That being said, my guest today is captain Paul Watson and We're going to be talking about ocean conservation. We're going to be talking about disappearing species. You know, it's kind of like a domino effect because you know the kelp disappears, then there's no food for the particular species, or something is overfished. Remember, big fish eat smaller fish. How that works. So, if something gets overfished, then then that destroys the food for whatever's going to whatever would have eaten that in the first place. So it's like a double-edged sword, and I think a lot of it. Has to do a cooperation too. I mean, it's fine and dandy that the U.S. you know the you know the U.S. is try, maybe trying to do things about Paul uh, Mr. Watts Captain Watson probably has more details on that. I don't. But you also have to figure in the you know try to get cooperation from other countries because while we may not be doing whaling or anything like that, you know somebody else is trapping and doing whaling or you know or or taking the kelp beds out or whatever. It's just how it is. It works that way with with the with with oxygen, right? You know, we're looking at that CO2 levels and all that, the pollution, the carbon levels and all that. And you know, it's fine and dandy that the U.S. is doing this stuff, but you know, some other country may not be doing it. So I, I think it's a thing. It, well, we'll talk. Like I said, we'll talk to Captain Watson about that. Where it has to be a co- a worldwide cooperation to keep these things going. I grew up by the ocean. I grew up in well, my sister lived in Fort Bragg, so every time i had time off of school or weekends i was in fort bragg so you know i admit i I used to go fishing but we you know we'd only get like two fish and not overdo it but i mean i got got really close to this stuff you know the the hermit hermit crabs and the tide pools and things like that i i have a deep respect for the ocean you know i've been out on the rocks where uh whales have actually you know blown out on these rocks. It scares the heck out of you. It's so quiet, and you're fishing, and then all of a sudden, boom. You know, you hear the whale. So anyway, I'm going to bring Paul on, and we're going to start talking about this stuff. And I, I think this is an important show to do. It really is an important show. Here we go. Good afternoon, sir.
1: Oh, good afternoon.
0: Can you tell me about you?
1: Uh, where, should I, where, where would you like me to begin?
0: Well, I mean, obviously, because I I, you know, I read back on on your background, so so you've done time on the ocean, you know, and on, on a boat. What got you into this this part of the conservation?
1: Well, actually, I began when I was 10 years old. I uh, spent a summer swimming with a family of beavers in eastern Canada, where I was raised. And every day I was swimming with the beavers, and it had a wonderful time. And the next year, when I went back, I couldn't find them, and... I found out that trappers had taken them all out, so that made me quite angry. So I I returned in the winter, and uh, I walked the trap lines and freed the animals and destroyed the traps. And uh, I guess I've been doing the same thing ever since.
0: It's wonderful, though. But, I mean, like I said earlier, it's sad because, you know, things are being hunted to extinction.
1: Yes, we... We've driven more species to uh, extinct in the last uh, few hundred years, and uh, it's incredible. We're going to lose more species of uh, plants and animals between 2000 and 2065 than we lost in the last 65 million years. They even have a name for it called the Anthropocene or the Sixth Major Extinction. And for the most part, it's out of sight and out of mind, and people don't really pay any mind to it.
0: Sure. Well, that's the thing. They don't pay any mind to it until they can't get food on their table, and they're wondering why.
1: You know. Well, yeah, because all over the world, uh, commercial fisheries are in a state of collapse. The northern cod fishery collapsed, orange roughy fishery collapsed, and bluefin uh, tuna fisheries collapsed. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's no, it doesn't seem to be any end in sight because the problem is, is when things become scarce, they become more valuable. So scarcity uh-huh. translates into more profits, which is, uh-huh. motivates them to go out and get it. So the fewer the fish, uh, the greater the technology which is put in play to catch those fish. So now you're seeing. $100 and $150 million factory ships, 100-mile-long uh, long lines, 100-mile-long gill nets, giant purse seine nets, and they're literally stripping the ocean of life.
0: Well, I agree with that. I've been doing a study on that as well. Um, you know, when you look at even the crab population now, I mean, like I hate to say it, they lose catch, you know, God forbid. But, I mean, those guys are having a hard time right now finding a crab because they're just not there.
1: Well, I'm surprised it lasts as long as it has. I mean, it's just totally over-exploitation. But I'll tell you the one thing that's the most alarming is that since 1950, there's been a 40% diminishment in phytoplankton in the sea. And phytoplankton provides up to 70% of the oxygen in the air we breathe and sequesters enormous amounts of CO2. Phytoplankton is the basis of all life. On the planet, if phytoplankton disappears, the ocean dies, and if the ocean dies, we die with it. So it's extremely important. And why is this happening? Because phytoplankton, these aquatic plants, depend on nutrients uh, to to uh, survive and to flourish. The nutrients, primary nutrients, are iron, magnesium, and nitrogen. And that comes from um, animals like whales and dolphins and seabirds. Uh, one blue whale every day defecates about three tons of manure, and uh, heavily rich in those three elements. And uh, when you diminish those uh, species, you're going to diminish the phytoplankton populations. Whales are literally the farmers of the ocean, and what they do is fertilize crops of phytoplankton.
0: Now, when you think of like whaling, I mean, you always think of the Russian—I hate to say it—the Russians, or, or even you know the Scandinavians or whatever doing it. Which country does the most whaling now?
1: Well, we've managed to shut whaling down pretty much 90% over the, you know, over the last 50 years. So the only countries that are whaling now and confined to their territorial waters are Norway, Japan, Iceland, and Denmark. And uh, Japan might return to the Southern Ocean next year or the year after because they're building a $150 million factory ship. If they do, then we'll go down there to uh, confront them once again. Right now we're battling Iceland because they're targeting endangered fin whales. All whaling is illegal internationally. The International Whaling Commission uh, banned commercial whaling in 1986, and that law is still in effect. So all whaling, all, all whalers are criminals right now. But the problem is, is that there's no real enforcement uh, agency that can enforce the laws. And that's the problem on the high seas with everything from whales to fish or whatever. We have all the laws and the regulations and the treaties we need, but we don't have any enforcement because there's a lack of economic and political motivation to go out and enforce these laws.
0: When you talk about these high-end boats, you know, when people think about whaling, you know, I'm not laughing about, when people think about whaling, they think of a harpoon, you know, somebody on the front of a boat, either (laughs) holding a harpoon, like, you know, Moby Dick or those big harpoon guns. How does does whaling work on on these high-tech boats?
1: Well, they have harpoon ships, which are big cannons that are on the bow that fire 150 pound explosive harpoons into the whales and it can take two to three harpoons to kill one whale wow. it can take anywhere from five minutes to an hour to kill a whale um, and uh, so with the japanese fleet you have four harpoon vessels and one giant factory ship that's the japanese whaling fleet iceland has two uh um, harpoon vessels they used to have four but i sank two of them so they only have two left Uh, Norway has a lot of small boats that go after minke whales. In Japan, uh, they kill whales in their territorial waters with uh, Harpoon vessels, also. But uh, what we've managed to do since 1975 is we shut down whaling in Australia, Chile, uh, Spain, uh, the pirate whaling operations, um, and Peru, South Korea. So there's been a lot of uh, victories over the last 50 years, and uh, I think we've eradicated about 90% of the global whaling operations. And we're just mopping up the rest.
0: So, how bad is the? I mean, how close are they to extinction? These whales.
1: Well, the good news on whales is that populations are coming back. Humpback whale populations are recovering. Right whales are being threatened by ship traffic, mainly, and also by the construction of offshore windmills. uh, Because the it's not the windmills themselves, but the construction of the windmills uh, creates about two hundred decibel sounds, which basically bursts the eardrums of dolphins and whales so uh you know not much is uh, being said about that we try to we try to address it but nobody wants to hear it because they want alternative energy and uh-huh. uh, they don't want they don't want to hear that it actually has problems uh-huh. so uh so but whale populations i think are for the most part recovering but they're going to recover slow
0: well like i said earlier you know it's it's a domino effect because if the planting goes away the whales have no food
1: and that's one of the big problems right now is uh, the diminishment of food supplies for mm-hmm. whales and dolphins, uh, orcas uh, the, in the pacific uh, northwest uh, the, the the orcas are literally starving because they're overfished everything that they eat and uh, as we diminish fish populations around the world, what we're seeing right now off of uh, Gibraltar and the entrance to the Mediterranean are orcas are actually attacking sailing boats uh, mm-hmm. because we literally we've taken the fish out of their mouths
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um. How, what do you think it has to be done? I mean, you guys are doing good, like, with these factories and everything that are doing this. What about the general population? How how can you uh, possibly get the word out to everybody? Like you say, people kind of ignore it because, you know, the food's on the table. There it is. You know, they, they don't stop to think about you know, what it could be costing to have this.
1: Well, we tried to do what we can. We had the whale wars show on Animal Planet, which reached a lot of people. And really, we have to work within the, the media to understand the media. And uh, to get your message across in the media is, is difficult, but it's not difficult if you know how to do it. And uh-huh. because, you know, the media, the mainstream media only I, only understands four things, sex, scandal, violence and celebrity. So that's why you have to incorporate those elements. Uh, when I brought Bridget Bardot off to the ice flows in Newfoundland in 77, that guaranteed us the cover of every single uh, major magazine uh-huh. in the world. Uh, So, you know, by using celebrities, by using drama, you can get your your point across. You know, in 2006, I went to the networks. and I said, look, the biggest show on Discovery right now is a bunch of men going into a very remote and hostile, cold place to catch crabs. And I can give you men and women from around the world going to a far more remote, far colder area to save whales. It has to be more compelling than catching crabs every day. Uh The
0: other question I have, you know, is you see a lot of things about Greenpeace, you dropping for themselves in front, in front of these ships. How do you guys go about doing this
1: stuff? Well, we intervene. We go after illegal activities, and uh, that rem- you know, blocking ships, ramming ships. Uh-huh. I've sunk six sh- whaling ships, and that might oh, seem wow. highly illegal. But uh, for instance, in 1986, I sank half of Iceland's whaling fleet, destroyed their whale processing plant, and um, because they were in violation of international conservation law uh they didn't take any action against me i had to actually fly to Reykjavik and demand that they charge me and when i landed there i was met by the police and immigration officer and they said how long do you intend to stay in iceland i said i don't know five days five minutes five years you tell me they said well we have to go for interrogation i said great i'm all for it let's go to interrogation they said are you admitting to sinking these ships i said you know we sunk them and we're going to sink the other two at the first opportunity the next morning they put me in a plane and sent me back to the states and the Minister of Justice stood up in the House in the Parliament there, the thing it's called, and he said, who does he think he is? He comes into our country and demands to be arrested. Get him out of here. And the reason he said that was because if they knew to put me on trial, it would be to put themselves on trial for their illegal activities. So that's how we challenge our opposition. Uh, you know, the reason they get away with doing what they're doing is because there's no enforcement, and that's the reason we get away with doing what we're doing against them, because really the ocean is the Wild West.
0: Right, right. So for people that don't understand how this food chain works with the ocean, can you explain a little bit? Because I, you know, I know that the, the whales eat plankton, but the killer whales also will eat meat. You know, like like, like sharks or whatever. Well, so how does it
1: work? Well, the phytoplankton is the basis of all life, not just in the ocean, but on the planet, because it provides 70% of the air, of the oxygen in the air we breathe and sequesters enormous amounts of CO2. But the, phyto, the, the, the phytoplankton then feeds the zooplankton, and the zooplankton then feeds the fishes and the whales and the penguins, moving all up the food chain to, you know, to the orcas or to the uh, sperm whales, uh, to, to humans. And uh, so basically, the, the foundation is phytoplankton, and on top of that is zooplankton, and everything else is dependent upon Upon, upon that
0: okay the other thing i was thinking too is people you know they're, they're i think i think the most thing they're aware of as far as this goes is the whales but there's also other fish like, like you were talking about tuna populations and stuff that, that, that are being affected as well
1: yeah so we've had campaigns to rescue tuna I, I cut the nets off the coast of libya of a of an outlaw fishing operation and released 800 wow. tuna back back into the ocean and uh we've uh, interfered with uh Drift net fishing, gill net fishing. We pulled one gill net out of the Southern Ocean that was targeting, uh, toothfish. Toothfish is sold under the name of Chilean sea bass. It's not from okay. Chile. It's not a bass, but, um, it's a marketing term. So that one net was set two kilometers down. It took us 110 hours to pull it up. That net was wow. 70, that was 70 tons and was 72 kilometers long. That was one wow. net from one ship. And so every day, like literally thousands and thousands of miles of gill nets or long lines are being set. And a, and a lot of that ends up being um, discarded. So about 40 percent of all of the plastics in the ocean come from uh, discarded fishing gear, which become ghost nets and become very, very destructive. So uh, the fishing industry is uh, causing problems on many levels, not just with overfishing, but also with plastic pollution.
0: Yeah, what comes to mind is these videos you see of people rescuing, tur- you know, turtles and, and, and you know that have swam into these nets and then they're all caught up and you know the, the guys pull them on the boat. They're cutting, you know, they're cutting these things off of them.
1: And and yeah, also we're also killing about nine, ninety million sharks every year. I mean, you got to say who's the monster? You know, the average number yeah. of people killed the average number of people killed by sharks every year is five. And we kill 90 million of them wow. and, but we've demonized the sharks, So, you know, we justify the killing of them. It's actually uh-huh. safer. It's actually safer to to swim in the ocean than it. It's actually safer to swim in the ocean than it is to play golf. More people die on golf courses from lightning strikes and bee stings and are killed in the ocean every day, 200 million people on this planet go into the ocean. And yet there's only five people every year killed by, uh, by sharks. Horses kill more people, dogs kill more people, hippopotamuses kill more people. Uh, So we we, we unfairly demonize sharks. And the shark is the apex predator in the ocean. It's absolutely essential. The shark has molded the behavior, the camouflage, the speed of every fish in the sea. Sharks have been there for 450 million years, and and they're basically keeping the ocean healthy. And the problem is, for instance, where are shark attacks most frequent? There are three places in the world where shark attacks are most frequent and they all have one thing in common. And those three places are La Reunion Island in the Indian Ocean, uh, Western Australia, and Queensland, Australia. And the the thing they have in common is shark control programs. They kill sharks. And what this does, for instance, La Reunion Island, you kill all the sharks inside the reef area, that creates a vacuum which brings in sharks from outside. Now these sharks coming in from the outside They're they're very territorial. They're more aggressive because of that, because they're trying to establish their territory. So the shark kill programs are actually encouraging hostile sharks to come into that vacuum. And uh, so we're really really causing the problem with shark attacks when it's not the sharks. I've swum with great whites. I've swum with tiger sharks. Um, You know, I've never felt threatened by them. Yeah,
0: I've swum with Caribbean reef sharks, too. You know, I've never had an issue with it. Um, I think it's sad. I, I, I think the state of it's a sad state of affairs. You know, when, when you're hunting species to to extinction, it's not right. But how? I mean, like you say, you, you go out there, and you, you 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 block the boats, you do this, you do that. But how hard is it to get you know this stuff regulated?
1: Well, it's not hard to get it regulated at all. We have all the regulations. We have all the laws. The problem is mm-hmm. it's in, it's almost impossible to enforce. So that's what we do is we go out and enforce. And uh, I use the United Nations World Charter for Nature as our foundation to do that. The UN World Charter for Nature says that any individual or non-government organization or nation state is empowered to uphold international conservation law. And that's what we're doing. About 12 years ago, I was invited by the FBI to give a lecture in Quantico on eco activism. And one of the FBI agents said, well, you know, uh, you're uh, operating on a very fine line. And I said, well, does it really matter how fine it is as long as you don't actually cross the line? We don't cross that line. I've never been convicted of convicted of a felony. I've never caused a single injury to a single person mm-hmm. in 50 years.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, like you say, the, you know, there is some hope out there. You, know, you, you see things changing. But, I mean, how much change do we does there have to really be out there? so that the plankton starts, you know, maturing again and growing
1: in all this. Well, the United Nations Conference on Climate Change in 2015 in Paris, which called COP21, um, I spoke there and I said, look, uh, all we have to do to address climate change is simple. We don't have to do anything. We just have to leave the ocean alone. Give it time to recover from the damage that we've done to it. We need at least a 75-year moratorium on heavy gear industrialized fishing operations. Give the ocean time to recover because our all commercial fisheries are in a state of collapse. There is no sustainable fishing anywhere in the world, anywhere. And it's going to get, get, get worse. So, we should put a moratorium on it if it's going to survive. The ocean is resilient, it can recover. We've seen that in World War I and World War II. When we were too busy killing each other, and the fish were left free to do whatever they want. And, and their populations rebounded. It doesn't take much time for it to, to heal itself. And we just have to give it that time.
0: You know, I think a good example of that was the lockdowns during COVID. Because yes, there were a there lot was of rivers, mm-hmm. yeah, there was a lot of rivers and stuff that suddenly cleared up because nobody was out.
1: It doesn't take very long at all for for nature to recover.
0: Um, you know, I I really am in awe of you for the for the work that you do. I really, you well, know, for doing. Well, this. thank
1: you, thank you.
0: You know, and uh, if I was younger myself, I might get involved. Now I'm too old to be running around doing stuff like that. But I mean, oh. how frightening! I mean how frightening is it if, if, if you're in this little boat and you come well, across one of those big
1: frigor things i i don't know about being younger i'm se- i'm 72 i'm still doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um you know uh, but i've been around boats all my life so that's not really a, a a thing that i'm very concerned about you know i was trained in the canadian coast guard and uh, the norwegian swedish merchant marine uh, mm-hmm. prior to getting involved i was a co-founder of greenpeace in 1972 and founded the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society in '77, and the Captain Paul Watson Foundation in 2022. So I've been doing this well, well over 60 years.
0: <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. When you talk about you know, the disappearing plankton and stuff, uh, as far as the sea creatures themselves go, which one do you, th- which, which, which species do you think is in the most danger at this point?
1: Well, I think everything in the ocean is endangered because I would say the most important thing, as I mentioned before, is phytoplankton. Uh, phytoplankton uh-huh. collapses. Every, everything collapses. Uh, that, look, look at, if you look at it this way, if you look at the Earth as a spaceship, which is what it is, we're on this incredible voyage around the Milky Way galaxy, and every spaceship has a life support system. And that life support system provides us with everything we need, food, the air we breathe, and, and regulates climate and temperature. And and that life support system is operated and maintained by a crew of engineers. They keep everything running. We humans, we're we're not engineers. We're passengers having a wonderful time amusing ourselves. But what we are doing is we're murdering the crew. We're killing off the engineers. And there's only so many engineers you kill before machinery begins to fall apart. We don't live in a world without bees and trees and worms and insects and bacterium and phytoplankton we simply don't uh we're interdependent there are three basic laws of ecology the first is the law of diversity the strength of an ecosystem is dependent upon the diversity of species within it the second is the law of interdependence that all of those species need each other they're interdependent with each other and the third is the law of finite resources there's a limit to carrying capacity is a limit to resources. When one species steals the carrying capacity of other species, that leads to diminishment of both diversity and interdependence, which leads to ecological collapse. You know, a few years ago, I had Brett Hume as a reporter for the Fox network, and he called me up and he said, I heard that at a lecture, you said that worms and bees, trees and whales are more important than people. I said, I think I did say that. And he says, how could you say something so outrageous? Well, I said it because worms, trees, bees, and whales are more important than people. That's a fact. And the proof of that is that they can live here without us. But we cannot live here without them. We need them. They don't need us. That makes them ecologically far more important than we are.
0: Oh, absolutely. I I agree 100%. And how do you you see this play out? Like you say, 70 years, 100 years for, for the changes to occur? Or, or like you say, will they go quickly? Because I mean, like I said, during COVID, wow, you know, when you looked at the different little streams and stuff and how well they cleared up, I mean, that was real fast.
1: Well, at some point, things will collapse and that will probably allow nature to regenerate and everything, but it won't be good, very good for people. The problem with climate change right now is it's, it's no longer should be called climate change. It's, I'm calling it climate chaos because it's out of control. It's completely out of control. There's nothing we can do right now to stop what's happening. Uh, All we can do is adjust to it. We need to adjust to survive it. We have to adjust. I mean, we're seeing things now that we haven't ever seen. I've never seen in my lifetime, super storms, uh, uh, outrageous uh, fires breaking out everywhere, droughts and Mm -hmm. floods and everything. You know, where I lived in, uh, Vermont, I thought that was one of the safest places to live. You know, I've been living there for years and, uh, on a mountain, fortunately, but, uh, never saw anything like a bad storm, never saw any floods really. And just recently we had this outrageous flood, which, uh, and mudslides and everything. Where did that come from? Uh, things are changing and they're not, and we saw the Lahaina fires, for example. I thought one of the, the most ironic things that happened in the last month was that about a dozen people put up a barricade to block a Burning Man. And the, sure. and, the, and the barricade was to address climate change, saying, you know, uh, we've got to do something about it. I thought it was probably the most Burning Man thing that anybody could do. Uh-huh. And every, everybody got really angry. They got mad. They didn't want to hear this. And then two days later, they are all victims of climate change. You know? <laughs> so it's uh, people just don't want to hear the message. And uh, the problem is they think it's just all going to go away, but, it, but it's not. It's not going to go away. All we can do is adjust to it and try. But I've always said that, you know, when you're faced with an impossible problem, you need to find the impossible solution. Mm-hmm. And I believe impossible solutions can be found through the application of passion, courage, imagination and perseverance. A good example, 1972, the very idea that Nelson Mandela would be president of South Africa was unthinkable, it was impossible, and yet the impossible became possible. And all over the world I'm seeing people, especially a lot of young people, who are making a difference by applying themselves to a particular species or whatever. Because of Diane Fossey, we still have mountain gorillas in Rwanda, because of David Wingate, we still have the Bermuda Storm petrel. Look what Greta Thunberg has been able to accomplish as a 16 year old schoolgirl. People can make a difference, and they can make a difference by having the, the, the courage to actually go out and make that difference and not be deterred by, by critics, for example. Uh, just be true to your passion. That's, that's what I try to tell young people as much as possible. You know, when um, people say you ask young people to risk their lives to protect whales, how can you how can you ask people to do that? I said, why is that so unusual? We ask mm-hmm. young people to not only risk their lives, but kill people to protect real estate and oil wells and religion and flags. Mm-hmm. I think it's a far more noble thing to risk your life to protect an endangered species or a threatened habitat.
0: Absolutely. And you know, over the years, and you know, as, as we age, because like my dad says, at some point, it's not our world anymore. But you wonder what the next generation is going to be like. You know, you wonder, you know, you're leaving their stuff in their hands. But what I've seen, like what you've seen and what you were just talking about, is the next generation is pretty cool. I mean, they're they're looking at all this stuff and they're willing to go out and and, and deal with it.
1: Well, we're looking at probably the first generation in a long time that doesn't really know what their future is, what the world's going to be like in 50, 40 years. My generation actually lived through the most materialistically wealthy and freest generation ever through the 60s and the 70s, the 80s. That won't come again. Governments are becoming more repressive because as climate change and environmental uh, issues deteriorate, governments are going to become more oppressive. They're going to go after protesters. They're going to go after people who are trying to question uh, corporate profits and that. And so, you know, they're even arresting in, in Europe now, they're even arresting people before they step out of the door to go to a protest. A protest has been announced and they're getting ready to leave. The police go right into the house and say, you're under arrest until the protest is over. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, this is unheard of. I mean, I could not do today the things that I did in the sixties and seventies. I'd be, I'd be shot if I did that. Right. So things, things have become more repressive and things have become more dire. But again, uh, people can't have, have imagination. People have, uh, willpower. And they have uh, courage, and I think that that overall that's where people can actually make a difference. The future will be defined by what people to do do today. I don't get mm-hmm. depressed about the future; I don't get pessimistic about the future because I have no power over the future right. all All the power we have is right now in the present, and the future will be defined what we do each and every day today that's That's where our power lies
0: and along that line now. You know for helping to get the conservation to help these things along, what do people have to really do you know especially landlocked people? I mean there's a lot of those you know plastic bottles that, that they're trying to outlaw now and all that because all they do is fill up the you know the, the the dumps and all that so So what's a place that someone can start eating in their home?
1: Well, first of all, I'd like to say that uh, you know people aren't landlocked uh there's a different okay. view of what the ocean is uh we We tend to think of the ocean as the sea but actually the ocean is the planet. It's water in continuous circulation through many mediums. Sometimes it's in the sea, sometimes in ice, sometimes underground, sometimes in the atmosphere, sometimes in the cells of every plant and animal on the planet. The water in your body right now is recently in some other animal or plant's body. It was recently locked in ice. It was recently flowing underground. Uh, so the, wa- the we are the ocean. The ocean flows through us every single day. So everything is connected to everything else. So when you pollute the atmosphere, you pollute the ocean. When you pollute the, or the sea, when you pollute the sea, you pollute our bodies. And so You pollute our bodies. You, you you pollute the land and the sea. Mm-hmm. Everything is interconnected, interdependent. Mm-hmm. Hey, cool. I was just
0: thinking as you said that too. I mean, the, the moon. The moon mm-hmm. is in the sun. It's all connected. You know, Everything is connected. That yeah, it's all connected. It's all connected So, like I said, ask um, for people to start doing the conservation at home to help out a little bit, what have, you know, what do you think would be basic steps for them to take?
1: Well, I think the most important thing is uh, we've got to put an end to factory farming. Uh, you know, killing ninety billion animals every year is the single greatest source of groundwater pollution, the single greatest uh, source of greenhouse gases, the single greatest source of dead zones in the ocean and also it's a a source of of outbreaks of zoonotic transmission of viruses you know every every day every year we kill vast numbers millions and millions of animals on factory farms to control those viruses because these concentration camps which are factory farms are what are producing a lot of these zoonotic transmitted viruses and one of the reasons viruses are happening more and more is when you destroy environment or ecosystems and you destroy other species the viruses that are associated with those species need somewhere to go, and right. eight billion of us were an attractive host. And they're gonna, the, the virus doesn't want it doesn't have a mind, but it doesn't want to kill you. But it, 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 to reach that coexistence, a lot of the hosts die in the in the process. But just look in the since 1995, we've seen the emergence of uh, Ebola, uh, zinc, Zika, West Nile, um, so many different zoonotic uh, transmission of viruses. COVID being another one. And that's going to become worse and worse. Uh, The the breakdown of ecosystems is going to lead to more new zoonomic uh, transmissions. And it's not just in people. One of the things that factory farms of of salmon, salmon farms on the west coast of Canada, are creating viruses and spread to indigenous salmon populations that don't have any immunity. And they're killing off indigenous salmon populations because of that. Because these salmon farms are heavily dosed with antibiotics and chemicals. And the indigenous salmon don't have any, uh, any any immunity to any of that.
0: Mm -hmm. It makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. Do you think, or do do you see changes, you know, because they've been so worried about um, the ozone layer, you know, with global warming and all that. Have you seen in the last few years, have you seen any improvements in it or is it just kind of staying the same?
1: Well, the ozone layer is actually a good example of how actions can make a difference. That was a real problem back in the 70s, early 80s. Then they Mm -hmm. banned, with the Montreal Convention, they banned uh, these aerosols. And actually, that's that's a, has improved the situation uh, dramatically. So the ozone uh, deterioration is not the threat that it once was. So it actually demonstrates that if we apply ourselves, we can actually change these things. We can reverse them, and uh, that's why I, I that's why I'm proposing a moratorium on commercially industrialized fishing uh, to, in order to protect our oceans. And my
0: question about global warming is this: um, to, to understand, because I, I know a lot of people global warming, global warming, right? But they don't really understand what it is or what causes it.
1: Can you clarify that? Well, uh, the buildup of greenhouse gases is probably the single greatest, uh, factor in doing that. And, uh, it's not just CO2. It's also, um, uh, it's even water vapor. It's also uh, methane. There's so many different things that are contributing to that. And, uh, so, it, but it gets out of control. And, uh, we were warned a long time ago this happened. You know, 250 million years ago was the Great Permian Extinction. And the, and the reason for this extinction was the buildup of CO2 up to about 1,600 parts per million. Uh-huh. and But it began at, really was triggered at 400 parts per million, which is where we're at right now. And so we have to reduce that. You cannot have 500, 600 parts per million and survive. It has uh-huh. to be tapped. It has to be kept down. It's already too high we can't go any much higher because then it gets out of control and then you have the planet Venus really (laughs) (laughs) and what happened there and and so that that's greenhouse gases out of control it's uh chemically it's very delicate I mean the earth the earth has mechanisms that have keep these things in control gases are controlled by uh, biology and by and it's everything is intricately linked interconnected and it's when we mess around with this that things begin begin to collapse
0: how hard is it to present this stuff to, say, politicians? I mean, are they willing to listen or is it, say, oh, thank you very much. That was interesting. Bye. How's that work?
1: Polit- politics is the art of the possible, which means you're not going to do anything that's going to get you, uh, you know, not reelected. <laughs> right. And any, polit- any politician who has the uh, courage to actually take action is usually thrown out or is get... Uh, Corporate donations dry up or whatever. Uh, you know, governments also have a lot of scientists. I don't trust any scientist that works for a government. I actually have a new name for them. I call them biostitutes. You know, basically, they say whatever the governments want or the corporations right. want. I, I don't really think that, that anything can be accomplished through government at all. I never seen it. I haven't seen it. Uh, change comes through the passion of individuals and true scientists are, of course, One of the things, I I actually established a church called the Church of Biocentrism. It's not a religious thing in a way, but it's more of a science-based thing. But it's to encourage people to have a biocentric outlook or a perspective. Our big problem is anthropocentrism, this idea that everything is created for us, that we're dominant over everything. It's all about us. We're the only species that matter. Every single dominant religion on this planet is anthropocentric. You know, we created our own gods in our image and everything. Biocentrism biocentrism tends to be the philosophy of indigenous peoples worldwide. And it's this understanding that we're part of everything. We're intimately connected to everything. We have to live in harmony with all other species.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. What do you say to someone that wants to get into your line of, of work?
1: I when people say uh, wanting to become an environmentalist, I always jokingly say you should study acting or music because you seem to have more you have more influence as an actor or a musician than you do as a scientist. But I think that people really just need to follow what they're passionate about. If it's oceanography or marine biology or forestry or whatever, what do you really, what are you really passionate about and can I make a difference in that field? So, you know, the strength of a movement, the strength of an ecosystem is in diversity. The strength of a movement is in diversity. So whether that approaches education, litigation or uh, legislation or uh, uh, direct intervention, it's all working towards the same thing. It's the application of people's abilities and passions towards a particular goal.
0: Yeah, when you, when, let's say when you go on a boat and you decide you're gonna go after a whaling boat or something, is there a big decision process on that? You know, are you tracking these boats or or what, what makes you decide to go, I'm not gonna say go after, but but try to help a, a particular species?
1: Well, we look at all uh, the situation, situation is can where can we practically intervene? Is there a strategic way that we can intervene? For instance we know how to deal with icelandic whalers we know how to deal with the japanese in the southern ocean we simply go down find them and block their operations we know how to deal with the illegal fishing we simply go and cut their nets uh, so but not everything for instance windmills on the east coast uh, which are causing the deaths of whales and dolphins people what are you going to do about it the problem is what can we do about it i mean we can talk to the media we can talk to the legislature whatever but we, there's no way we can take a ship and actually do anything. We're not. It'd be like Aquatic uh, Don Quixote's going out and ramming windmills. It's not going to solve anything, on that. Right. But uh, so there, so there, you have to have education and science as a as a means to uh, address that situation. Uh, what we do uh, is we address illegal activities through intervention, blocking, and uh, you know, just literally stopping them. Now
0: you're in uh right now. Are you yes. doing a particular lecture or teaching, or, or
1: what do you do in France? Well, oh, I yeah. came to France. I came to France for my uh, son's education. I wanted him to have a bilingual education, and also um, we we work a lot out of Europe. My my ship is in the UK right now. We're working mm-hmm. on getting another one here in France, and uh, my organization is now active in uh, in France, uh, Spain, Italy, Germany, the UK, Brazil, New Zealand, Australia, and the United States mm-hmm. and Canada. And so, you know, I could be anywhere, but I I actually happen to like Paris quite a bit. So that's why I'm here.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. I love Paris. In the future, when you look forward to the future of doing this, what do you want to see happen?
1: Well, I would like to see, uh, you know, uh, an enforcement agency, an international enforcement agency that will uphold international conservation laws, regulations, and treaties, that's what we need we need you know we have all these so-called um, marine sanctuaries or uh, you know places or reserves but that's right. where the poachers that's where the poachers go because they know there's that's where they can get things but there's no enforcement what's the point of having a sanctuary if there's no enfor- enforcement within the sanctuary right, now i have right. to say when it comes to, when it comes to the united states uh national marine fisheries uh you know the fish and wildlife and everything have been really good so there's not a lot of illegal activities in u.s waters and that, but uh, the rest of the world, I mean, there's some, uh, Scotland's pretty good, uh, Australia's pretty good, but there's a lot of places, most of the world, it's not very good at all.
0: Um, You know, as you get more and more into you've been doing this for years and years, what do you think is, what country do you think is the worst offender right now?
1: Well, it all depends, really. When it comes to illegal fishing, I would think it'd be China, Russia, and Spain. Uh, when it comes to uh, pollution, it would be the United States, Russia, <laughs> China, <laughs> you know, Australia, you know, they're pretty, Canada is pretty bad too, uh, you know, with the tar sands and, and, and that. The industrialized countries uh, in general are a big source of the problem.
0: Um, when, you, when you look at this stuff, like I said, like we talked about the, pol- the politicians earlier, is it easier to convince the general population You know, to conserve, or do you think it has to come from political
1: level? Well, I think the general population is far ahead of the the politicians. And that Uh politicians just can't do anything. Uh, For instance, many years ago, I would say about 30 years ago, actually, I remember the Prime Minister of Canada, Joe Clark, uh, decided, Uh he said, you know, we we can't be continuing to subsidize the uh, fossil fuel industry. Uh, Uh People should pay the price for what a gallon of gasoline is really worth. Well, six months six months later, he is no longer prime minister because of that. You know, people do not see. Here's the thing: everybody wants change, but nobody wants to change.
0: Sure, <laughs> sure, sure. Now, when you have, the, i was just going to ask you this about fish: if you go to a restaurant and they're serving fish, will you eat the fish? Will what? Like, if you go to a restaurant that, that that's serving fish. Are you the kind yes. of person, because of what you do, that it's like, no, I'm going to have this
1: instead? Or do you go ahead and well, eat fish? It's just curious. No, I don't, I, no I, I don't eat fish. I don't eat meat on okay. that. Uh, but also, look at the carbon footprint. You know, for instance, Chilean sea bass is a good example. The toothfish is right. caught in the Southern right, right, Ocean. Right. You catch this fish in the Southern Ocean. You transport it by weeks in a ship. You Then you freeze it, put it on a plane, fly it to Paris, fly it to London. And there's no way that can be called sustainable. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. Now, is, is there sustainable fishing? Yeah. If you have a canoe, if you're coming out of uh, out the coast of Africa or out of the Philippines and you're putting a line in the water, I guess you can call that sustainable fishing. But giant uh-huh. factory ships, uh, first uh, you know, long liners, drift netters, this is no way this can be sustainable. This no, is just no. basically strip mining life in the ocean. I mean, it's getting so bad right now. I, I saw a story last week where they're actually harvesting jellyfish. You know, wow. we've, gotten down, we've gotten down to what, finding industrial uses for jellyfish. And one of the worst things is that they're going after krill or zooplankton down in the right. Southern Ocean. Norway and Japan are doing this. And why are they going after the krill? Because they want to make it into a protein paste to fed to uh, factory farmed animals. So a cheap form of prote- uh, protein for factory farms. So they're literally taking the food out of the mouths of whales and penguins and fishes in right. order to, uh, to do that.
0: I was
1: just going to ask you what you thought of that, too, like like the tilapia farms or, or the salmon farms. Well, Does the salmon farms, I, I can't speak to tilapia farms, but I, I can yeah. speak to salmon farms. Salmon farms right. are extremely destructive. Uh, be, to, to raise one salmon on a salmon farm requires taking 70 fish out of the ocean, out of the wild, to feed that one fish wow. as you raise it. Plus, they're heavily, they're concentration camps, really, where the the disease is kept under control through massive doses of antibiotics and through uh, a lot of very uh, deadly chemicals. For instance, they have to have a bath to destroy the uh, salmon lice, uh, and they put this fish into the chemical, which means that fish cannot be eaten for at least a year because of the chemicals on it. So it has to take that long to get over it. The, the salmon lice then go from the, um, the salmon farms and then they go and affect wild salmon, which is also causing a, di- a diminishment of wild salmon populations. We removed, we removed 24 salmon farms in British Columbia. And within a very short time, the wild salmon populations began to, to uh, recover because of that. So we've got to get rid of these salmon farms if we're going to have a healthy fish population. And when you think about it, if you or I were to take a piranha and put it in a lake in california that's a crime we're putting an exotic right. predator into that but here we're taking the atlantic salmon an exotic predator putting it into the waters of british columbia tasmania Chile, and other places where it doesn't belong right. and uh, it's competing with the wild things. so how are they able to get away with that when we can't put a piranha in a lake in california <laughs> you know
0: that's true that's true absolutely what do you say to people right like like today if, if you were telling if you were trying to tell people about this plight
1: today, what would you say? Well, I said that everybody's got to, gotta to, to be involved. We have to be concerned we have to look at our carbon footprint. we have to look at uh-huh. what we eat and the impact of what that of that we have to look at i mean things that we don't even think about for instance, what's a major source of uh plastic pollution in the ocean that we don't think about? automobiles every time an automobile goes down the road it loses micro microplastics and a study in norway showed that 30 percent of the mic of the microplastics in the coast of norway was automobile tires pieces and that and see what happens when plastic gets into the ocean it breaks down into microplastic and that microplastic is then ingested by fish and seabirds and everything and if you eat and if a human being eats fish today i can pretty much guarantee that there's microplastic in their bodies It gets in there. It's even infiltrated into the krill. And uh, who knows what that is going to cause in in the long run. In addition, uh, the higher the fish is on the food chain, uh, the more heavy metals, methylmercury and everything is involved in it. And if you eat swordfish every week, you're going to have a high methylmercury contact in in your body. Same with sharks or other larger predators like that. I was
0: just thinking about that because I used to do catfishing, you know, I catch them, already, but if I would eat them. If I didn't eat them, I put them back. You know, just to keep mm-hmm. things going. But I know there, they came up in California. California is full of environmental laws. It's California, but I remember um, reading somewhere that you could probably get away with eating one or two catfish a week because otherwise the mercury levels in the river were so high that that, yeah. that it can affect you.
1: Yeah. Well, you could, you know, if you take a hair analyst, uh, analyze the hairs of any person, you can right. tell what your merc- the mercury content is in your body. Mm-hmm. And people who eat fish a lot have very high levels of methylmercury in their bodies.
0: That's interesting. it's just a, that that pretty much comes from human I waste, right, from factories and stuff, right? You know, getting yeah. in the water.
1: Yeah. Here's another little fact that people don't uh, think about. Uh, just a study in Canada. Uh, mm-hmm. Prematoriums pump 17 tons of methylmercury methyl mercury into the atmosphere every year, coming out of the bodies of the people they burn. And that's just in that Canada. So, you know, all these things, we just don't give any thought about it. We don't think about it. Right. But, you know, it's constant right. the constant interchange of these chemicals.
0: That makes absolute sense, too. I never thought about that. Wow, I learned something new today. See, that's what this is about, learn, yeah. learning from you. You know, what, what can be done, what can't be done. So, when you look at the operations that you have, well, I don't want to give stuff
1: away, but what are your next steps? Uh, we have a campaign against super trawlers coming up in November. We're working on a campaign to protect river dolphins in the Amazon. Uh, we have uh-huh. people right now on the island of Mayotte and in the ocean that are confronting at night, confronting turtle poachers and protecting turtles. Uh, we will be returning to Iceland next June to protect the whales, and we're also involved heavily in the Faroe Islands to stop the killing of pilot whales and dolphins there. Uh, but you know really the strength of uh, the conservation movement it lies in the hundreds of thousands of people around the world who are getting involved passionately on every level. that's that's really what makes the difference.
0: Uh, like I said earlier, I think what you guys do is wonderful. That's well, thank think people should be. More people should be involved in doing this and more people should be aware of what is going on because at some point if, if this doesn't get under control, like you say, the, the ocean's going to cease to be there. We're going to cease to be
1: there. Yeah, I just and- encourage people to go to our website and uh, support our Navy. Join our Navy. That's <laughs> really what it is. We want to build up a, a Navy that protects the ocean.
0: So do you guys work with Greenpeace at all?
1: No, their, Greenpeace has a completely different approach. And, uh, you know, it's more it's more of a mainstream approach, more educational, I suppose. But again, there's a lot of diversity within this movement, different approaches in that. You know, the Greenpeace that I co-founded is no longer the same Greenpeace. It's changed, just as Sea Shepherd has changed. Uh, mm-hmm. I've never changed, really. That's the difference.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in all the years you've been doing this, um, you know, up to this point, what what are you most proud of?
1: Driving the Japanese whaling fleet out of the southern uh, ocean, uh, taking away the market for seal pelts, which uh, has, they, they have a quota of 400,000, but they killed 27,000 only because, and only because it's heavily subsidized by the Canadian government. But that literally has saved hundreds and hundreds of thousands of, uh, of seals. Uh, we, you know, we've uh, shut down uh, drift net fishing, uh, long lining in many places. So there's a lot, a lot of victories over the over the years. And uh, so I'm proud of all of those uh, various victories.
0: That's fantastic. Absolutely really fantastic. What's
1: your website? Uh, www.paulwatsonfoundation.org Okay. If people want to donate, can they donate
0: through your website?
1: Yes. And actually, I try to encourage people to become monthly donors. That gives us the security to do our operations. That could be only $5 a month or whatever. But mm-hmm. uh, that, uh, that, uh, you know, when you have a monthly donor program, then you know you've got that much money to work with, and you can get the ships out there and do things.
0: Fantastic. Paul, this hour blew by. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. I really
0: appreciate it. you know. This is something that is near and dear to my heart.
1: One uh, last question: you. yeah. If
0: you're on a, if you're the strip in Vegas, and it's you, if you're on the strip in Vegas, and it's you, if, if and, oh, yeah. you <laughs> and it's you, it's Greenpeace, it's Sea Shepherds, you know, and and other conservation groups, what do you say to draw people to your group?
1: Uh, we don't say anything. Actually, we do okay. things. And people see what we do. Uh, you'll never see one of us out on the streets asking, now uh, sign this petition or uh, donate to us. For, we're not going to be on the streets. Uh, we'll be in the news uh, and we'll be in documentaries and things like that. But cool. it, we're going to concentrate on the actions at sea. And uh, so that's really probably the difference between us and a lot of groups.
0: Okay, cool. Well, again, But if I was
1: on the I, w- I have been on the strip in Vegas, and I recruited one, a very uh, wonderful supporter. Steve Wynn is one of our supporters. So. Oh,
0: you know. awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that would be really awesome. Well, thank yeah. you so much, and I appreciate it. Enjoy your time in France. Oh, there's, thank there's you. nothing like Paris, I'll tell you. But maybe at some point down the line, we'll get you on again and then get some updates on how things are going with you guys. Oh, well, thank you. All right, sir. Have a great one. Thanks. Bye. Thank you so much. All right. I mean, this is near and dear to my heart. I'm glad I got to talk to this gentleman. I was so excited to have him on. All right. I will see you guys tomorrow. Uh, show 630 p.m. Pacific. Uh, yeah. And I'm real happy. So if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it, with, share it with five of your enemies. For, of course, for equal opportunity here. And, uh, wow, that's all I can say. So I will see you guys tomorrow, 630 p.m. Pacific. Have a great evening, folks.